Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Laurel Espinosa. Espinosa is the Vice President for Research at the American Council on Education. She has over 20 years of experience in higher education practice, policy, and research, and is a national voice on issues pertaining to college access and success for diverse population and on the role of equity-minded leadership in post-secondary settings. She's visiting us today as part of a panel that examines the multiple factors that shape inequities in education, access, and success. Laurel, welcome to Ohio. Thank you. Can you tell us about yourself, perhaps your educational background? Sure, yeah, I, I always think about um, how important background is to the things that we ultimately care about. And, you know, my own educational background is not unlike other Latinx uh, people in our country. I started in community college, mm -hmm. which is a common you path. Mm -hmm. You too, mm -hmm. which is a common path Uh, to and through higher education in this country for this population. And I did transfer to um, UC Davis. I'm from California, mm -hmm. so I did all of my education there. And I have a PhD from UCLA. So, you know, I am one of a very small number mm -hmm. of um, Latinx individuals that have a PhD. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my beginnings, I come from a low-income background, first generation to graduate from college. And, of course, that has shaped the way that I think about educational opportunities and barriers. And mm -hmm. it's why I study what I study. So I really do look at inequities, um, specifically around race mm -hmm. and ethnicity, income and other things too. Um, also look at identities that students hold and carry with them and uh, really the, the student experience in higher education with an emphasis on students of color. Right. So how is the work you do for ACE or your research informed by your own experiences going through maybe the bachelor's, the master's, PhD program? Yeah. So, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to climate mm -hmm. for students, um, racial climate in particular. So this is the environment within colleges and universities, but also within departments, academic departments, other spaces on a campus where students feel more or less welcome, mm -hmm. where they feel like they belong, where they feel that they see people like them in the faculty or leadership positions. Also, the subtle messages that are sent to students. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a spectrum of, of um, positive to negative climate for students of color in particular on America's college campuses. And, you know, I, I experienced some of that myself, mm -hmm. of course, moving through the um, community college setting, through the bachelor's degree. I mean, it, certainly as far back as high school, right? right When right. I was told that I wasn't college ready, mm -hmm. which quite frankly, I wasn't, mm -hmm. but I wasn't also encouraged to seek out how to mm -hmm. become college ready. Mm -hmm. And that's why the community colleges are so valuable that they can give you another shot at getting 
you know, ready for a bachelor's degree. Um, so that's that's a lot of my focus and why I do it is because of my own experience. And I, I did also start out wanting to be a doctor, mm-hmm. like a lot of <laughs> students in general. Mm-hmm. And so that put me into the path of what we call STEM majors, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And, you know, that also was not a very welcoming climate. Mm-hmm. I ended up switching out of that um, path into an art uh, studio degree, which, of course, I, I am very grateful for my education there. But, you know, that's actually quite common. So students of color, we know from the research, pursue these STEM disciplines, even at rates that can be higher than white students. Mm-hmm. But once they get into the disciplines and once they experience the educational environment and also this other side of the experience, the social mm-hmm. environment, the climate, mm-hmm. the way that they interact with faculty and mm-hmm. peers, mm-hmm. Um, it can be discouraging and discouraging enough to leave mm-hmm. those majors, sometimes to leave the institution. Right, right. I always said I also wanted to be a doctor, and I'm just now a different kind of doctor, That's not right. a medical yeah. doctor. <laughs> I had to write a different kind of doctor. Right. That's right. <laughs> um, how do you define equity-minded leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, there there are different definitions out there, different ideas about what it means to me, like to, to put it into sort of lay person terms or mm-hmm. into, a, into a more colloquial way of talking about it. Um, to me, it's about the way that you see the world and in particular, the way that you see the world that you lead. Mm-hmm. So the way that college presidents, for example, view their student body, their faculty, their staff, the environments that they lead, you know, all, all of what they manage and, and are responsible for. And, and ultimately, it means that you go about your day, your every day. So it's not just about forming spaces on a campus where you might address equity, but you go about your every day um, life, professional life, uh, thinking about equity and thinking about inequities. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly it's not just enough to have them on your mind. You need data mm-hmm. to, to tell you where these inequities exist. Mm-hmm. So a, an equity-minded leader would be one that knows how to use data to um, show where inequities exist and then use that same data to create solutions. Right. And so equity-mindedness comes by way of practice, the way that we are, the way that, you know, again, these leaders engage in their settings. It also means how they lead with the people that work directly for them and how that transcends to the people that work for them and sort of spreads across a campus, hopefully. That's Mm -hmm. the ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also means that, you know, that they think about their institutional practice and institutional policies with an equity framework, Mm -hmm. which, again, goes back to understanding where inequities are mm-hmm. and, and being really honest with with um, oneself about that and about the role of the systems that are in place on a campus that might perpetuate mm. those inequities. Yeah, yeah, that's key. Um, lately, we are having open discussions regarding perhaps inconsistencies um, of thought or practices regarding services available to underserved groups in higher education. For example, we're seeing increased efforts to enroll minoritized population, even the designation, right, acquiring that Hispanic-serving in, um, institution designation. Uh, but but not much is being done to ensure inclusion, representation, and equity. How can we close this gap? 
Yeah, you know, you can't talk about the Hispanic student experience mm-hmm. without talking about Hispanic serving institutions or HSIs. Mm-hmm. And for those that don't know about this group too well, I mean, you may have heard of them, but they're institutions that serve um, 25% or more of their student body mm-hmm. um, needs to be Hispanic in, mm-hmm. the, in the case of this designation. And also these institutions must meet a threshold whereby they have lower than average educational and general expenditures. So they are also under-resourced, as mm-hmm. we like to say, which mm-hmm. certainly doesn't um, always equate to being able to provide all of the policy and practice that that we know works for, for students. But um, they are a growing group of institutions. And, you know, for example, when I first started looking at them, there was maybe a couple hundred. Today, mm-hmm. there's over 500. Right. And, and the Hispanic population in our country has grown um, dramatically in terms of both size within the United States, but mm-hmm. also size within higher education, including at the bachelor's level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a big conversation we have around HSIs is what it means to serve mm-hmm. Hispanic students. So there is actually a handful of HSIs in this country that have been such for many years and actually started with the intention of serving a Hispanic community, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are others that people like to call Hispanic enrolling, mm-hmm. not Hispanic serving, mm-hmm. because they're enrolling the students. You know, their communities changed, mm-hmm. and so their student body started to change, and there isn't necessarily always a level of what we call intentionality mm-hmm. in approaching the education. <laughs> right, it sort of just happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are also, of course, Hispanic-serving institutions that you know, it happened, but they're very intentional right. about but, this but population. That's it, right. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. they're they're equipping themselves, mm-hmm. and and so you know, there's there's a lot I think that the longstanding HSIs can um, teach the the newly what we call emerging HSIs because mm-hmm. there's a whole other group of institutions that are right on the bubble, right? Mm-hmm. That we'll see become HSIs in the near future, and and so I, I think that notion, though, to get to your question about inclusion. The notion of what it means to serve, mm-hmm. um, in this case, Hispanic students, and what it means to be intentional mm-hmm. about that service and not just treat it like a reaction, mm-hmm. but like a proactive responsibility. Mm-hmm. And to see the student as a whole, like every every everything about them, right? Their, their identity, their culture that comes into the classroom, but in every aspect in terms of maybe organizations or even leadership programs, et cetera. That's right. right. Yeah, the cultural competency, mm-hmm. as we call it, for faculty and staff. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion nationally as there needs to be about the makeup of the faculty bodies at these institutions. So it is true that at HSIs and at many of the minority serving institutions, as they are called, um, they have more diverse faculties, but they're still not at parity with their undergraduate student body. Mm-hmm. So we really need to focus on diversifying the faculty. That that goes a long way. The representation and then training faculty um, to be culturally competent, there's a big push right now to do implicit bias training, mm-hmm. which is to help people understand the biases that they carry around and how that might manifest in their teaching and the way that they interact with students. Right. So, there, yes, to your point, it's a holistic approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How does race and ethnicity impact specifically our Latina and Latino students on campus? Yeah, so, you know, when I think about 
that question, I think about this bigger picture, right? So um, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Hispanic population in this country has grown tremendously in the last 20 years. And the diversity of higher education has also grown. And it's actually been the Hispanic growth that has really pushed Mm -hmm. the numbers of what we call underrepresented minority groups, although I don't like to use that word because, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're soon going to see a majority student of color um, body. But um, but there's been a great deal of growth and there's been a doubling, for example, of the representation of Hispanics at the bachelor's degree level enrollment wise um, over the last 20 years. And so we really need to celebrate that. Um, However, when you dig a little bit deeper past these gains, Mm -hmm. um, you see that Hispanic students are enrolling um, mostly if, if you look at where they go to school in community colleges, in the least selective institutions, mm-hmm. really the, the institutions that are the most under-resourced and mm-hmm. don't necessarily have the same outcomes as some of the more resourced institutions. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons why that happens, um, which we, you know, that could be a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. but, but recognizing that when you think about the trajectories of students coming out of those spaces, you know, they, they look very different than students who start at a four-year institution or start at a selective institution. We also see differences in what students study. So, for example, Hispanic students are more likely to go for an associate's degree, but they're not necessarily getting that degree in the highest-paying fields, mm. so those being healthcare fields mm-hmm. or STEM fields. And so that, you know, has an effect on their labor market sort of value, what, you know, what their, what their trajectory, trajectory will be, mm-hmm. um, certainly if they're coming from a low-income background. Um, positively, you know, we have a, a real problem in this country with student debt right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I shouldn't dramatize it too much because when you look at borrowing rates for bachelor's degrees, it's, you know, it's not the numbers you always hear in the media, mm-hmm. but... Um, certainly we have to pay attention to it. Hispanic students actually borrow less than other groups. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something there cultural Mm -hmm. too, that could, that, you know, other researchers are exploring. And, and then once you get into these other spaces, you just see, um, Hispanic students sort of falling off along the way. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get to graduate education, you know, it's in the single digit representation, especially at the doctoral level. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll manifest in the faculty, therefore, because right. those people come out of doctoral programs. And so as you kind of go up the, the ladder, you see fewer and fewer Hispanics. Mm-hmm. And I should say, despite the gains, which are really um, substantial, like I said, the majority of Hispanics in this country still have a high school diploma or less, mm-hmm. about 60%. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're not we're not seeing the kind of movement that I that I know we want to see. Right. You just reminded me, um, you know, in terms of borrowing um, student debt and things like that. Mm-hmm. I just met, I think as a community, as uh, Latinos, uh, we're very resourceful. And we think of other ways um, besides borrowing to pay for education, yeah. which... Uh, sometimes means that that'll take longer, right, to, right. to finish. Um, but I met two DACA students recently that graduated debt-free. Wow. And yeah. it was amazing to hear that, right? And this, these are students that, are, that have a, a bigger struggle, right? Just um, even obtaining possible loans or, mm-hmm. or scholarships, yet um, they were able to, to, to graduate with, with no debt. Um, so I think of um, 
not only how resourceful we are, but also um, culturally, it, mm-hmm. it has to do with you know, being more careful about our finances and things like that. Yeah, there's something really interesting there to dig into um, from a research perspective. Right. <laughs> and I know there are people doing that, so I, I applaud that work. And and I, I like that concept of resourcefulness. I myself worked um, two to three jobs mm-hmm. my whole time through college, mm-hmm. putting myself mm-hmm. through. Now, college was cheaper when I finished my bachelor's degree, but I still, I did have debt, but it wasn't, it wasn't at the levels we see today. Oh, yes. It's, um, it's scary to even think about the, the amount. Uh, Laurel, is there anything else you would like to add about yourself or the work that you're doing? Maybe um, the panel that you're about to, to be a part of? Yeah, well, I, I'm excited to be on campus to talk about our new report out of ACE, the Race and Ethnicity in Higher Education uh, report and people can can access that report and all of the data in it at equityandhighered.org. Mm-hmm. It's a great resource, um, especially to make the case for why race matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we put these data into the world so that people working to close equity gaps have a really consistent, rigorous place to turn mm-hmm. for national level data. Um, the neat thing about talking about national level data on campuses is that I think it encourages the leadership on campuses to take a look at their data and see where do they stack up compared to some of these national averages. And um, I know that here at Ohio State that's happening and that's great. Um, But, you know, we have to do a better job of talking about race. Mm -hmm. We don't do a good job in this country talking about race. Um, We like to turn to income or first generation status. Mm -hmm. And yet the research and lived experiences show that race is still a prevailing factor for the destinations that people arrive to in education. And, you know, we have to address that Mm -hmm. and not sort of push it aside for some of these other Um, identities or traits of students. We've got to be able to talk about race more openly. So I'm excited to be doing that this afternoon here. Great. Um, Laurel, thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. (laughs) 